I'm Elise, dietitian and nutritionist based in the Silicon Valley. I believe that we all deserve an effortless relationship with food without obsession. How long have you had your practice, Remy? So I, the psychotherapy part of it, like the somatic body centered psych has been about 10 years, but I started doing the healing work and teaching yoga and doing body work and stuff like that way long ago. So probably like 2000, 2001, Mm -hmm. but then grad school in 2008. So by the time I finished that was 12. So about 10 years and then licensed for about half of those because it takes a while. Mm-hmm. So it really was yoga started first, that body piece, and then and then the rest of it. Right, exactly. And then, well, yeah, I'd say a couple years later went into the hands-on stuff because that goes really well with yoga. But yeah, I was a mover. I was a gymnast and a and a dancer and all that. And so, not professionally, but I was pretty into it when I was a kid. And so I thought, what's the next step for? keeping my interest in this kind of body stuff, but not, you know, being an intense athlete. Cause that kind of is a limited option. Mm. Yeah. And so even when I kind of see your work on your website, you do such a great job of integrating <laughs> both of these pieces. So how did you kind of get to this place where you have both pieces in your work? And when you say both pieces, which do you mean like the psychotherapy mixed with the body work, Mm -hmm. you kind of put body and yoga in one category. Does Mm -hmm. that work for you? Yes. Well, what I started noticing, and it's probably similar to someone with your experience, you know, what you did in your own aberration. But for me, I was working with people and, you know, I was helping them and whether it was stretching or yoga or body work, but then all the psychosomatic aspects of what they were going through and what was really you know, instigating the symptoms, it, that wasn't really being addressed. So I have a bit of an academic brain anyway. So when I, by the time I was 30, I just realized, you know, even though touch therapy is wonderful and I want to help people heal what's actually going on in their psyche and why are these things coming out? And so I thought, huh, I'm going to get into psychology, but I didn't actually think, oh yes, I'm going to be a psychotherapist. It was just sort of a natural evolution of there's a reason that we hold and and what the the body psychotherapist called body armor was sort of the term that happened back in the day with Wilhelm Reich, who was the founder of father somatic psychology. So these ideas of how we hold structures in our bodies as now they call it, I don't know if you've heard the term parts work mm-hmm. or IFS is a big, that's a big approach right now. So that's another way to look at it. Like we have all these different parts, but the somatic energy of it is really well, why is somebody having these kind of issues? And so when I found somatic psychology, it was just the perfect combination between understanding how the body works in terms of we actually have physical symptoms. We actually can, you know, utilize our body in certain ways, both for good and bad. And then also what is happening underneath the psyche that's actually leading to that. So it's a little Mm -hmm. bit of a different approach. Not a lot of people know about it. So I could go on and on, but I'll pause there. Mm -hmm. It's really like the chicken and egg thing with the body and the mind. Cause I see this a lot too, as I do more of this work where, I mean, from a very surface level, people just are not aware of those internal signals. But beyond that, I think those, I think when you mentioned the body as armor from a body image standpoint, some people I think subconsciously are holding on to things because it does whatever body weight or how little or how much of it is there. It is the armor to shield people or to, you know, be more open to people. I see that too. 
Right. You must. Yeah. Cause it's so instrumental in what happens with nutrition and what happens with body dysmorphia and all these kind of things that, you know, you work more with in connection with food. So yeah, it's a really fascinating process and, and the, the integration of it is really where the future is, which I think is how we met because we both liked each other's stuff, Mm -hmm. you know, like how can people connect on both? And it's, we still have a very cognitive society in the sense of, yes, we're humans. We have brains. We we're cerebral. We talk, but there's still this approach of like thought forward existence versus listening to, you know, what our bodies are actually saying. So mm-hmm. hoping that shift happens more on the massive scale soon. <laughs> yeah. It reminds me of that time that I was in Bali and I took a yoga class and it was so early in the morning. My brain was half like asleep. And the yoga teacher said, let your body guide, not the mind. Yeah. That was a first time I heard it. And I like, I had to pause for a second because I was like trying to click through what he was saying. And he finally explained it to me. Like the body is so simple, right? If you just let the body lead, give it the simple things that it needs and it'll probably be fine. But our minds are pretty muddled and overstimulated. So unless our body or unless our mind is wise enough to fully take care of our bodies, just let that be on the sidelines for a bit. Absolutely. That's good advice. (laughs) Bali's good like that. Oh my gosh, I know. It was so nice and very woo-woo, but exactly what I needed at the time. Sure, sure. But what are some of the things that you see specifically when your patients or clients come to you that you're like, oh, this this makes sense? <clears throat> like it makes sense in terms of what I see in the symptoms or tell me a little more what you mean. Yeah, like those specific symptoms that you see that you know is connected to something like internal. Mm-hmm. There's, there's so many, but I'd say a really big one. I mean, there's, there's a couple that are pretty, I hate to say this, like standard, what we call somaticizations where someone's going, oh yeah, you know, I'm feeling that in my chest. And usually I guide this because a lot of people don't have the awareness to pause and go, okay, what is that? How do I describe it? And I can get to that later, but it's describing it, understanding the sensation. Sometimes it has a shape to it. Sometimes there's like a density and that tends to be chest solar plexus. So I would say the most common thing for anyone while they're processing something is tight chest where the ribs meet or a little bit higher can be like anywhere between here and here. And it goes with a lot of emotions, but often because anxiety is such a big one, as I'm sure you see in your practice, you know, the anxiety piece is right here. doesn't mean it can't be in the stomach doesn't mean it can't even be in the head for people, but I would say through here and the other one lately, the throat and it's been really interesting to observe because I personally don't somaticize a lot in my throat. I'm more of like a solar plexus person when I get tense or whatever happens, but a lot of my clients are like, they'll instantly feel closing of the throat because their dynamic in their life is I can't express myself. I can't speak. I can't speak my voice, right? So they might be telling me a story about, you know, what happened with a loved one or a family member and how they, you know, there's these root deeper needs, right? Like I'm not heard. I wasn't loved. I'm just generalizing for the sake of this. They're obviously way more, you know, intricate, but let's just say it was something around, you know, a relationship with someone, a family or a member or a partner where they couldn't actually express themselves. So while they're in session, they'll feel, they'll start to actually feel like a block in the throat. And then that's where I get curious. Can you describe that? You know, 
Is there, is there a wideness or a narrowness to it? Is there color to it? Is there temperature to it? Mm -hmm. So that's really how we work with the somatic work. And then those are the themes, but there's a lot, you know, a lot of people when they're cerebral, which I mean, I am as well. So I totally empathize and relate, but when they're in session and they're just really on a tear of trying to analyze, I will literally start to feel it in my own head. Mm. And then usually when I ask them, they're like, oh yeah, I feel like I have bees in my head. So it's stuff like that. It's really interesting. I love it. Yeah. Sometimes that energy can be contagious, you know, especially with my patients too. If they're talking at the speed of light, I end up picking up my pace too, to keep up. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And it's hard, right? Cause we need, it's like a co-regulation thing, but it's not always at the right speed for you. I imagine. I know. And then by the end, I'm like, I'm all worked up and I'm like, my heart is racing. (laughs) Yeah. I hear you. And if you ever want, you know, some, we can talk about that sometime, but some it's fully okay. And this is obviously my clinical opinion. So you, you can, you can resonate or not. And I I won't be offended, but if you're feeling like they're pulling you at your pace, it's also really okay to be like, you know what, gosh, I'm noticing that. Can we take a few breaths? It's hard though, you know, because you want to stifle people's energy, but at the same time, it's okay to say, I'm really noticing right now that the speed of your voice just went up. Like, I'm wondering if you would be okay if we just like tried something a little slower and see what happens. Mm-hmm. I love that. Cause I think people naming things, whether it's trivial like that, it actually, actually holds a lot of significance and it makes everyone a little bit more calm too. Something I notice a lot in my patients lately is this, this, the difference between the feeling of anxiety and hunger. And if there's anxiety, it actually muddles or mutes or confuses their feelings of hunger because it all feels the same in the stomach region and picking it apart. I love how you asked, you know, what is the texture? What's the density? Because I think if we knew the nuances a little bit more, it'd be easier to pick those things apart. Sure. How So how does that work for you in those moments when they're, do you, cause I'm, you know, I think with eating related issues or disorders, you really want to be gentle. So I don't want to speak to what you should do. I'm curious, is that something that you'll name with them and really work through all the aspects? Like what's your approach with that when they're, mm-hmm. when they're feeling it somatically? Yes. So I think, you know, hunger can be as simple or as complex depending mm-hmm. on how many years of you know, suppressing that, that signal has been. So, you know, for the most part, some people feel it like more so in the stomach. Some people feel it more as an energy drain or like shakiness or like lightheadedness, or of course, you know, the, the basic growling and things like that. But I think what I have them identify is, okay, the times that you are definitely 100% certain that you're anxious and like maybe there's hunger, maybe that there's not hunger, what does that feel like versus the times that you're confused, like the times that you definitely like could be 50-50, what does that feel like? If they can parse through that difference, at least we're closer to what true hunger feels like. And then the times that you're super relaxed and you're hungry, if you can describe that, then we have the different shades to base off of. That's great. I love that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's such a, it's such a whole nother dimension with, with food related. Cause there's so much happening. I mean, this is, sounds trite, but in the abdomen, there's so much of our energy is happening there. Mm-hmm. So it's a really delicate dance. And I like how you said, if you have to name it, cause have you heard that slogan in psychology? It's, or I don't know exactly. It's like, if you name it, you tame it. Have you heard about that? No, but I, I totally understand that. Mm-hmm. So that was Dr. Dan's. Siegel. So he's somebody who does a lot of work with 
the nervous, well, it's a nervous system, but the neuroscience of attachment and attunement. So it's great that you said that because that's a really big premise in body centered psychology, which is really like through, through the naming of it, you're getting, I, I mean, I'm no, I'm not, you think you have more science background than I do. <laughs> so I'll let you speak to this, but through the actual ability to acknowledge what's happening, they've done research and seen how that actually connects to regulation and downregulation of sympathetic arousal. So, you know, sympathetic arousal is our fight, flight, freeze response, our fight, flight response. And so you want to really go into, okay, how, what's the, and, and what's the name of this? Like, what's the texture? What's the shape? And that's the hardest thing for my clients because they're like, what are you talking about? What do you mean? What texture is it? You know, and most of them are amazing at this. And a lot of them for good reason are confused. So like what, but it's really almost like a simple thing. Like it's, I think of it childlike, like if you were a kid and you were describing a painting, you would say very simple things about the painting. You'd say, you know, there's green grass. I see a tree. The sky is blue. And sometimes we can't do that with our own body, right? It's tight. My stomach feels full or empty, right? Mm -hmm. uh, there's tingling. It's hot. So those are really good tools for us, for any of us, for anything we're dealing with, but especially just going into that. And I think there's some neuroscience attached to that, which is what Dr. Siegel and these experts in neuroscience have looked at. So yeah, if you haven't geeked out on that, I recommend it. Mm. I can already see the application of it just in my work too. Whenever people are like overeating or maybe like just mindless eating, there's almost like a body disassociation of like I'm pushing past fullness. And even though I'm uncomfortable, I don't even realize because I'm just numb. So I think the moment that they can start to recognize, okay, is something tingling? How's my stomach? It already like centers them and brings them back down to earth, which is so powerful. And that's great. It sounds like you utilize that, help educate them about that. Yes, because I think it's so easy to just mindlessly go, go, go without addressing. It's kind of like, even for me too, in my sessions, I don't know if you do this. I think you probably do this a lot where like, if I don't know where to lead the session, cause it could go four different ways, just okay. naming, like, you know, we could go a few different ways mm -hmm. that calms me down and clarifies yeah, yeah. for me. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. I know what you mean. It's kind of like helping them. It, it sounds like you're saying help, helping them direct the session for themselves, but also knowing there's options. So exactly. have to do one thing. How do they, how does that get responded to when they you say always, yeah, I could always sense that they're more like energized or interested in this one thing. And that makes me feel relieved of like, okay, the power is now you, you get to decide. So oh, that's great. I love it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I think, yeah, I, I totally see the value of naming whatever it be like physical or like mental. <laughs> yeah. And it's hard to name because, you know, I, I, I'm not sure how much of just the general, you know, hypothalamus amygdala stuff you're aware of, but just for people listening to this, you know, we're, we're primal, we're, we're wired as mammals. So it's very difficult, even though we have the consciousness during like our nice calm moments here, or maybe when the person is having a good week with their, with their eating behaviors, or maybe one of my clients is, is really low stress and low anxiety. It's really easy to go, Oh, okay. I can like totally name everything and I can feel what's happening in my body. And then boom, right. We have a stress response and we have a stress trigger and it's autonomic. And so the nervous system just goes into high alert. And then all that's connected to so many other things, right? 
How did we learn to do that when we were children? What was that first with a lot of my clients who I mostly refer out because, you know, I don't specialize in eating disorders, but I do work with a lot of people by way of the fact that there is so much you know, food related needs and challenges in all of these communities. So we're not, I don't separate it, but I do want to always get people to support like from someone like you or outside of that. But the people I do work with that have shared these things with me, you know, it's kind of like that, that's a very early childhood response. So mm-hmm. maybe if they reached for that extra muffin or that extra food bar. I'm sure the first time they started feeling that need of not recognizing hunger was so much younger right? So often we're just looking at the younger parts. If I could like maybe say that's part A, but then part B, even though there's quite a few parts, but just to keep it simple, but then part B being there's literally a primal wiring that's going, okay, do this now, Mm -hmm. you know? So it's hard in moments of stress to do the naming that we're talking about and to slow down and to ask those questions because we go into like a threat response or stress response. But the more it's practiced day to day, then it get the signal gets more familiar. And I'm sure you have your own way of working with people on that, but yeah, I'm curious how, how you help your clients and patients recognize those feelings when they're in a high stress response. I don't know if that's something you mm-hmm. like speaking to. I think, uh, yeah, all of adulthood, I feel like is on rewiring that initial instinctual response. But I think for my patients, what ends up happening is identifying that perfect storm, like those factors that are going to be like the cause of a chaotic storm with food and then trying to set yourself up for success. So when it comes to food, at least I always ask, you know, there is probably a food that you feel really uncomfortable with. What Mm -hmm. is the situation? What's the time of day? What's the context that you can eat this calmly and Mm -hmm. eat this free? Like, for example, when you're not hungry, in the middle of the day, when there's still sunlight, maybe you're outside with people, mm. try to do exposure therapy in those setting, settings yeah. and do it regularly. It's that abundance mindset versus scarcity mindset. Like if I literally told you, you had to eat this treat every day after lunch. And if you miss a day, you fail. Right. right. I'm, I'm sure by like day eight, you're going to be like, okay, I probably, you know, I got it. I don't need to overdo it. It's kind of that, mm. but I... <laughs> But under times of stress, it really is, yeah, putting all of those pieces and like checking in during the process, like naming mm-hmm. how you're feeling during the the beginning, mid and end of that mm-hmm. eating experience and seeing what your body is telling you. I love that. Yeah. And I imagine, you know, again, I don't want to speak out of school here, but I imagine that same thing you just said, like trying to do it in this very limiting, controlling way is probably why so many diets fail, right? Mm-hmm. Because, you yeah. know, when you made that analogy of having to do something at the same time, all the time, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And I think the emotions part is the part that people get tripped up on the most of like all of my life, I've addressed this overwhelming emotion with food. And that like link is so tied. How can we unlink that? Mm -hmm. And I always talk about the analogy with the kids toys, like the circle and the square and the triangle. And we're just trying to fit it into the right like hole, right? But if every answer is like a candy bar, let's just say it's a square and you're trying to fit into the star and fit into the circle. If you like jam it hard enough, maybe it'll fit, but like you really needed to address your sadness and Mm. like the candy bar, like could have fit into the circle, but not the perfect fit. 
I love that analogy that you came up with that, huh? Mm -hmm, I did. Yeah. That's so primal. I mean, not primal, but, but young, juvenile, you know, which is where a lot of this stuff starts, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And that Mm -hmm. goes back to your naming concept too, of like, okay, do you actually know the nuances of what you're feeling emotionally? Cause if Mm -hmm. you can say what it is, then you know what you need a little Mm -hmm. bit more closely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's good. Mm -hmm. I love it. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, inevitably, like the beginning of my work, you'll probably laugh at this, but when I was younger, I I used to think in this very diet focused way with my practice of like, oh, just eat this, do this. Like, let's think about this. And the more that I did this work, I mean, I knew it even when I was like younger and I was dieting and doing these crazy things with food. None of that actually works. Like logically, we all know too much. It's not about the logic. It's Mm. about the emotion regulation and like the body sensation piece that people are missing. So Mm. those are the two components that I've been focused on more and more as the years go go on. And especially in this like disordered eating, intuitive eating space. Yeah, it's really, how how do you find, I mean, I think this is a pretty long and like, this is a complicated question, (laughs) but I'm curious how you, how you work with the big range of behaviors you know, how is that for you when you have, if you don't mind me asking you questions? <laughs> oh, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like how you have one person maybe where you can see the behaviors on a spectrum of, you know, functionality for lack of a better word, maybe where it's not completely disrupting their life, but there is some disruption. And then the ones that really are, you know, is there, I imagine you create a lot of different treatment plans for all types. Is there sort of an in-between with all of that that you can see in the middle? I guess I'm curious about the how you look at behaviors as well. That might be the first part of the question. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is such a good question because everyone is at a different level of readiness or like they value different things. And for, for reference, four days a week, I work in this corporate job where I see people from tech companies here in the Silicon Valley. Oh, So they come to me for everything and anything under the sun, whether it's like, I want to lose weight to, I have high blood sugar to, I have high cholesterol to like, Mm -hmm. I have disordered eating. So Mm -hmm. I see everyone. And then in my private practice, I see mostly like disordered eating and binge eating. Mm -hmm. But whenever something like, this is so funny, I've I've matured as a practitioner over the years. So now when I see someone who is coming to me because they want to lose weight and a diet and like going on a diet, I Mm -hmm. automatically am setting the like, I'm. I'm setting the base for what they need. Like, okay, I know you're trying to do this, but I want to also like help you stay attuned to your body and your emotions during this process. I'm not a huge proponent for like doing wacky things with your food. I rarely talk about food with those people, but I'll see how ready they are to explore those other two things with me. Mm -hmm. And once we set that foundation, then I can continue to support them. But I know those people are so rigid right now. They're so logic-based that yes. I just need to steer them to center. <laughs> I love that. You know, I'm just, I'm have, I'm taking little notes here because I love what you're saying. What that makes me think of, this is really interesting. I wonder if you, if you feel this connection that I'm making between what we both do. It's kind of like when people come to me, this happens a lot. And I actually, to, to, be very sweet and beginner's mind about this. I did it when I was young and I went to my first somatic therapist. So I totally have been here where they'll come in and they'll bring an email or a text exchange or, you know, something that they're like, this is what I want to address. And so I better read you this whole email, right? Like, let's just say it's interpersonal spat or it's a text from whoever, 
whomever. And so they'll be like, you know, well, do you want to read it? Like, do you want to read the email? Because that's going to help you understand everything that's going on with me. Right. Mm. So to people listening out there, I'm not saying that's bad to not want to share with your therapist or your coach or, you know, your nutritionist, some emotional things that are in writing, but it's, it's a, it made me think of what you said about, they'll come with you. They'll come to you with all these ideas of what they think that they want to work on. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you kind of have to filter through that a little and be like, okay, what's the first piece that we need to work on? That's what I'm hearing you say. I think you can expound on what I'm saying a little better in your field. But to me, it reminds me of when there's like, okay, this is everything that's going to happen. And this is what I want to fix. And then the other day with this couple, they're like, and we want to do it in four sessions before we get married. Mm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, you know, it's, it's the desire is there and it's important, but I guess what I'm trying to say is we have to backpedal into our body responses, like you just said, right. And slow down and break it down into smaller pieces. So I don't know if that resonates with you, what I'm saying with your job, but it feels similar a little bit in that way. Totally. Yeah. I think the mind's trying to leap and like sprint and they're not even realizing that they're engaging in all or nothing mindset with food mm-hmm. and how they're viewing, how they're, what what they're doing, but exactly <laughs> like filling the gaps of like the blind spots that they're not even realizing. Yeah. And I think it's good for us to, with all of anyone of us, whether it's a clinician or a client to be like, how can I just be slower with myself and more gentle and be like, it's okay and take a breath. And like, and, and I'd say this to myself all the time, you know, it's just like, get into that. Like, it's okay to do one little piece at a time and then see what opens up. And mm-hmm. it's really the premise of everything, at least in somatic psychotherapy and somatic psychology, it's really getting in touch with the lived experience of the body and then how that's going to inform us of how to step forward versus kind of also what I heard you saying, trying to get all these things done. And then somehow in there, your body has been not rejected, but possibly abandoned in that process. So, right. And I do have a question for you because one patient comes to mind and this, this is like the type of patient where they're so tight in their body, like everything is tense. And regardless of how much meditation or like who knows how much meditation they're sure. implementing, but they know of these things logically, they know what to do, but everything just feels so tense. What, what is sort of some of the things that come to mind for you when you're working with someone like that? Well, let me, let me ask you this. Tell me a little bit about the tension that they exhibit beyond. So maybe you could start with what, what makes you know that they're tense? Like, tell me, describe to me a little bit what looks tense Mm, and how that, what that means for you. Yeah. I think the the one person that comes to mind is like, it always shows up in the shoulders Mm -hmm. and the neck and, you know, they've done so much Cairo and PT and like acupuncture and Mm -hmm. they're just still so tense. And even though like I ask, you know, when do you notice these tension moments? They're like all the time. If I just like mm-hmm. check in with that part of my body, it's always tense. Yeah. Um, those well, are, yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, sorry. Oh, go for it. Well, there, I want to, I want to answer that, but I want to ask one more question before I answer it to kind of suss out things a little more. So how would you describe, and, and this is kind of a thing called character structure that we talk about in my field. How would you describe and and we say this with loving respect to this client, the personality energy of this person, mm-hmm. how do they present to you? And you could use words like, you know, adjectives or something to do with his or her or their personality. What, what are some words that jump out at you as a, as their clinician 
Mm-hmm. I would say maybe a level of rigidness, mm-hmm. but very soft, like soft rigidness. Mm-hmm. And probably there is a groundedness to her personality. Mm-hmm. So she is calm, but I think there is an, a level of rigidness. Right. Maybe. Okay. So mm-hmm. go, sorry, I didn't want to cut you off. Anything else you wanted to add? That's all I can really think of. And I feel like a lot of people can probably relate to this where it's like, I feel calm. I present calm, but sure. like there's just sure. so much tension I'm holding. <laughs> so the reason I asked you that is because usually in this case, you, because you're the one telling me, but with any person and people can do this with themselves, they don't have to be in session, but it helps in session because you have an objective person, but usually the person can tell you what, what that's actually representing by either what they're saying or by their actual character structure. So it's interesting you use the word rigid because rigid, there's there's a couple of things that have been defined into categories. We have more than just you know six or seven character structures, but there's often ones that define us. And what's funny is the, the Lowen-based character study work that people have done and one of my mentors expanded on rigid is a title for one of the body structures. Mm. So it's not to say that you don't have other aspects. So you can definitely be soft and loving and grounded and still have rigid tendencies. Mm -hmm. Uh, But usually as a lot of us know, with shoulder tension, you know, that repetitive need to hold back Mm -hmm. either with opinion, right? So maybe she's rigid with her perspectives, which many of us are. So this isn't a judgment. Maybe she's rigid in, being able to expand in her work environment or in her love life. Maybe there's a bit of a shutdown often with those rigid people, you will see it between upper neck back, just kind of like a gripping, but Mm -hmm. again, you can have, some of us can have some rigidity and then it manifests in other areas of the body too. So we try not to typecast too much. It's kind of like saying, you know, like what we said earlier is for lack of a better analogy, like only this food is okay. Absolutely. hundred percent. Never again. Like it's, mm-hmm. we don't want to categorize it with, with that means it's bad or good, but it's mm-hmm. more interesting. So it sounds like, you know, what I would say is shoulders and neck. Would you say it goes down her back all over? I think it just stays up here. Yeah. So I noticed for myself, you know, it depends also a couple subcategories that are less emotional is like if they're athletic, And then if they're not, and it's really just stuck there, I try not to put things in boxes with labels, but it's a big one I've noticed with anger Mm. and and pent up frustration, right? Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like when a lot of us process anger, we can start to feel it in the trapezius and in the shoulders, which is really where a lot gets stored. Mm -hmm. So that's something to notice. But again, like I said earlier, it doesn't mean that's the only space. So I don't know how many of you listening or us right now have felt that tightness in the jaw can be anger, right? But then for other people, when they're really needing something from other, right? Maybe they didn't have a caretaker that showed up for them enough, or maybe their partner doesn't listen to them. Often jaw will come in, right? Mm -hmm. Because there's this like need, which is interesting when you think about food also, Mm -hmm right? Like where am I not getting my needs met and how that manifests? So Mm -hmm. yeah, there's a lot of options. Yeah. It's so interesting how you, yeah, there's so many nuances and how the things can show up in our body. What is something that you wish people knew more about when it comes to somatic healing? Hmm. I think 
the main thing, which we actually, all of us need to practice, whether we've been doing somatic healing or somatic psychotherapy or body movement stuff our whole lives or not, or if you're a complete beginner who knows absolutely nothing, I think the main thing is trying to notice the responses and how they present, like we were talking about naming them and how it's connected to emotion right? Because then you can get power over them. So it doesn't mean, and when I say power over it, that sounds like a domination thing. I don't mean controlling our bodies, but power of the emotion, like, gosh, okay, I'm really sad right now, or I'm in a fight with my partner or something. What What's going on? Where is that in my body? And so when you do that, even though it can still be unpleasant sometimes to feel those feelings, like maybe your client's shoulders or how I mentioned the solar plexus earlier, and that's tight in the ribs. It may be uncomfortable, but what I've found through my own experience, and then also how I've been advised over the years by experts, is when you do it, it it's it attenuates the response. So it's not to say it always will reduce the response, but it, there's an, an effect of going, okay, if we all can just pause and notice, we still might be stressed, we still might be reactive, it's not, we're not superhuman, but there's this like, how do I slow it down and notice I was just crying or I was just happy or I was just mad. I'm just throwing out emotions. And then all of a sudden I felt this in this location. Mm -hmm. So it's really powerful. And I wish that we were taught that younger. I don't know about you, but the only places I've really seen that I shouldn't say the only, but you know, just me as a growing up in the nineties kind of girl, you know, I didn't really hear about any of this stuff, even though I was into healing. My parents did a lot of spiritual work. You know, I, I was exposed to a lot of alternative things, but nobody, it was still very cognitive. I don't know about, you know, your influences of spirituality, but a lot, you know, said Bali's woo woo, like that kind of stuff. I was raised with some of that, but it was very head-based. Like these are your beliefs. This is what you need to do with your beliefs. And that's super important. And that's why CBT is so effective and other, you know, I'm sure techniques in your field, but this feeling of where's the body, like where are kids being taught that they're able to just be held and like to breathe and to like, I mean, wouldn't it have been perfect for all kids in school to go, what color is my chest? Right. Mm -hmm. So anyway, that that's a long answer to saying, I wish there was a little more education at a younger age for people to be more connected with their bodies. I think some alternative schools do this, but I've heard from my friends who are teachers, you know, mm -hmm. the, when kids are having like a fit or a panic, they're supported rather than, you know, put in a corner kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that's my my hope, yeah. but it starts with us, right? We just teach each other and do it. And then slowly it makes a difference. Mm -hmm. It's funny you mentioned your upbringing. Cause I kind of lived in a probably similar setting to you. I <laughs> lived in Marin County and there were more whole foods than I can count within walking oh, distance. Yeah. So I think I was like in that bubble too, but again, it didn't trickle down into like, okay, this physical piece that you're mentioning, sure. but I know you're in Santa Barbara. Did you always grow up there too? Well, you know, what's really funny. I don't think you know this. I was born in Palo Alto. Oh, crazy. Really? Isn't that weird? So, so what you picked up on, even though you were in Marin, it's close enough. And now, you know, Palo Alto, it's definitely mm -hmm. changed since when I was born and, you know, like just close to 1980, but but the, that whole movement that my mom jumped in on in the late seventies, they're actually immigrants. So my parents are South African. Mm -hmm. And so they emigrated there because my dad got a residency at Stanford. He's still a doctor actually practicing, but he, that was his way into the States. 
And so Palo Alto at that time, I, I'm not sure if you know any people older than you that were there, mm -hmm. but it's funny you say that about Marin, because I think Palo Alto had that kind of vibe. You know, my mom was like going to some alternative classes and just starting to get into yoga as a South African lady. But yeah, that was really, I think that helped them a little bit. My dad was obviously in the, the, the vein that you took, you know, like Stanford, Berkeley, science focus. So I don't think he really found it till later, mm -hmm. but Santa Barbara then is, I think it's got a sort of a sister vibe to the old Palo Alto, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I think with big tech, things have just, obviously, as you know, this is what you do that it's changed, but the energy of, it sounds like you're saying a little bit alternative. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. I will say I've met a few kids, even in college, when I went to Cal, there were quite a few kids from, you know, this Silicon Valley area and I could, they were such go-getters, even like just interacting with them. They were so ambitious. And to this day, they're the kids. Like I, I see some of these dependents of these people that live in this area, their, their children and adolescents. Oh my God, the pressure that these kids have in school, they're very much living in their mind all day. And the amount of like medications oh. that kids are on these days, it's, it's rampant. It's higher than I would have imagined. So. Right. Are you working with younger age groups as well, like teenage? And they come far and few in between. Thank goodness, because adolescents keep me up at night. <laughs> sure, sure, they're tough, <laughs> but they are under so much pressure around here. So I see. I could understand with this type of upbringing. Even back then, I'm sure it was like a high pressure maybe sure, situation. Sure. <laughs> yeah, my partner's actually from Los Altos, and so he was telling me recently how how he noticed that what you just said about the young men and women in that generation of growing up there and the pressure that they had and how, how many of them are successful. I'm curious what you make of that other than, you know, the industry itself sort of promulgating this energy of success. Do you think there's anything to that as far as the culture or as far as the, I don't know, the more intuitive aspects or what, what do you make of that? What you said? Mm, I just think, yeah, I think it's in the air. And when everyone, when everyone is in this bubble, everyone feels like the low bar is high, right? Like for me living in Marin, we were like in a very artsy high school. People were in drama. It was very diverse interests. So like, you know, the low bar is probably lower than the low bar here, like in Palo right. Alto. Right. So <laughs> it just felt like I had more room to explore and grow without as much pressure. So maybe that's the difference. That's great. Did you do, was your school an art school? Like, did you study that in high school as well? No, I wish I did. Cause we had a great drama department, but I think being up there, it's just a little bit more hit, like hippy dippy and like, you know, people yeah. were surfing. So it was sure. very different. <laughs> it sounds like the old, older Santa Barbara too. How, it, yeah, it's, there's a lot of similarities there. Mm -hmm. I could see why we connected. This makes yeah. sense now. <laughs> Yeah. I, I was actually trying to remember how you even found me because what was, was it, were you interested in somatic psychology or? Mm -hmm. okay. So I had a few search terms that I was super interested in, like somatic healing was one, brain cool. spotting, EMDR. I was like interested in all of these areas of psychology and I just wanted to connect with people who were like specialized in them. Mm -hmm. And you came up top of my feed when I searched somatic. So Great. Yeah, I, I kind of love this work because I can see how my patients can value from like gain value from this work on top of the other modalities too. Oh, hundred percent. And it's so connected. And I I want to be a support to help people find their right clinicians. Again, like I said, 
I really, if I was to do eating disordered work or eating behavior work, I'd want to give it 110%. And that's just because I have another specialty. That's not what I'm doing currently, but I a hundred percent believe that the body centered therapy approaches with what you do are key. So that might be a neat thing too. Well, I'm sure they exist, but it's hard, you know, it's still a burgeoning field, this whole somatic thing, right? Mm -hmm. So it's becoming more of a buzzword and people hear about it, but my mentors and the people that started my graduate school, they kind of based it off of what they call the human potential movement, which is funny. You mentioned Marin and way before you were born, but I know that a lot of the founders and stuff happened in the Bay area in the seventies that got taken actually, believe it or not from Europe, there were a lot of these approaches were European based and then they came to the States and that's where a lot of these kind of like hippie transformative, you know, let's get into our bodies, let's do psychedelics, all that kind of stuff started happening for healing. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I, I hope to see more eating focused people find their expert ways because I, I, again, it's, it's not my focus, but I, I really support it to find the ways that it can be really supportive for people who present with disordered eating mm -hmm. and find a way for it to be really safe. I do do EMDR and I I've had some good luck with that. I, I don't know if you've done much work with researching that or it's, it's a, it's a fairly new approach. Eye movement mm -hmm. and reprocessing. So because that works with trauma in all, all of its facets, I think I've had some good results with that, with people that present with food related issues. But then I also like to, you know, have them talk to someone like you who does this full time. Cause that's important too. what I'm curious, what your take is on the trauma piece, mm -hmm. you know, as a nutritionist who you, you seem to me like a psychotherapist, but it sounds like that wasn't necessarily your training. So what, how do you work with that mm -hmm. with your clients, the trauma piece? Yeah, I think this piece, it's so important because I didn't realize that my eating, eating issue was a result of the little traumas that I experienced growing up and feeling so different. So as the years have gone on, I realized that that was really the, the beginning of it all. So whenever I see my patients, I try to really understand their like upbringing and how they felt in their family unit or even in their community and like how they felt growing up. Cause I feel like that probably is so important. And the reason that I listed those three modalities be is because I know that they touch on they their focus is on trauma and whether it's a tiny trauma or a bigger trauma, I think anyone would benefit from such work. And I'm sure there are layers. And I, this is like also me, I should have been a probably a therapist, but like, yeah. I don't, <laughs> I don't have the expertise to go deeper because once we get sure. into the real mushy, like emotions, I'm like, I, my, like my, my head, my logic is turning on, but my emotions, yeah. I don't know how to like match this or support yeah. you. So I got to like put you somewhere else. <laughs> you refer out in that, but that's smart. That's good. That's good wisdom that, you know, to refer out rather than trying to pretend, but you would, you would also be a great therapist. So I support that, except I don't know if you want to go through all those hours at this point with all of your degrees already. <laughs> I know no, that dream is too far gone, but no, I, I definitely yeah. see the value of all of this work because a human is so complex. And I really think an eating issue is a side effect or a sign of something much, much deeper. Mm -hmm. What's your take on, I know, like you said, it's not necessarily your wheelhouse to do the clinical psych work. So you refer out, but what, what's your sense of how the mainstream model, I don't know if you do a lot of networking and discussion with eating disorder based clinics mm. 
or psychotherapist. We haven't really talked about that. And, and if you, if we want to do this off the pod, that's fine too, because it might be a longer answer, but what's your take on how the mainstream psych world is approaching eating disorders right now? And I know I'm generalizing, but in your experience of different IOPs or different treatment centers, Mm-hmm. Uh, I wish I had an answer for this because I've never worked in an inpatient like treatment facility like that. Mm-hmm. I have a therapist or I have a friend who's in her residency who worked in the eating disorder ward for months and months and she would tell me stories. But mm-hmm. I, the way that they're treating eating disorders inpatient that I know of, I think mm-hmm. is a little bit more rigid. It's much more rigid than how I would probably like to see it in yeah. that at least from the meal plan standpoint, I understand that at that level of severity, you do need to feed these people, sure. but it almost like goes into the like opposite end of the extreme of like, we are just going to force feed you like mm. past your comfort zone. And it's not like, it's not keeping pace with their level of like growth and readiness as maybe a, a human, like at that yeah. stage. Yeah. I see that, but I'm sure there's probably newer facilities that I don't, I'm not aware of, and they probably are integrating more of this intuitive eating lens to it. Well said. And, you know, I only had one of my internships. I I don't know how it is for nutritional. You said, did you say apprenticeship? What was your word? Residency. Mm -hmm. I, but we have, you know, various for, for psychotherapy and probably LCSWs as well. I'm an LMFT you know, you need to do various hours. And so one of, I was lucky enough to work at a intensive outpatient day, day program for mm-hmm. a couple months and had a wonderful clinical director. And I did learn a lot, but I did notice that I noticed what you just said. And again, I, I never want to speak out of school. It sounds like that's what has worked for a lot of them. But what I noticed was something similar to what you just said is that it, it was sort of a one plan fits all model. Mm-hmm. And I noticed them doing that with all of the girls. I don't think there was any guys at that particular group. And just, I was curious about that. And so that's why I asked people that that do it. But again, like you said, I think when it gets really severe, there needs to be some kind of structure that mm-hmm. maybe your clients or other people that have been able to succeed and not to say all of, all of our clients are high functioning, but you know, there's different programs for different people, which makes sense, but I, I am, it would be nice to see more of those things integrated. But again, I don't have a huge experience. I just worked at one clinic. I did enjoy how much they supported DBT. Mm. Uh, So if there's people out there, you know, interested in more dialectical behavioral therapy, I know a lot of that can work. And a lot of that crosses over with mindfulness, Mm -hmm. which is great. So yeah. Yeah. I know. I've had a few patients who've been to inpatient treatment centers before, mm-hmm. and yet there's still a little bit of a missing piece where they mm-hmm. their emotion regulation is still not there yet. Mm-hmm. I think it's that's just an ongoing practice for many years to come. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I do see the parallel in our work. It's like, I think with somatic stuff, it's all about on a very like body level, un, like rewiring Right. how you are from just like that Mm -hmm. first piece, which is the body piece. Mm -hmm. And it must, I imagine you see a lot of parallels with addiction too, Mm -hmm. because it's kind of like, here's this destructive behavior or whether it's a one on the destructive scale or a 10, there's still some element of, I need this in order to change my way of being or in order to change my emotions. Mm -hmm. So it really does go hand in hand with addiction and, and, you know, obviously self-care is huge. So if people are going to find those things that they love, that's, I'm always trying to push that. Like, just please, please do something to take care of yourself. Even if it's just a walk in the park and you're mm-hmm. going for 10 minutes 
or you're putting on a podcast and you're walking, or, you know, obviously I'm a big fan of yoga. I've been teaching it for over 20 years, but yoga doesn't work for everyone. So a lot of my clients, I'm like, well, try five poses either online or take a class or on your own and just see what happens and do some breathing. And if they're like, I still don't like yoga, yoga's not my thing. It's like, there's so many things to do to regulate. And that I'd say, I think you asked me earlier, like, what do I want to see change? I would say if I had a genie in a bottle and I could say, this is what I'd like to see for people is kind of thinking, what if they could take the pressure off themselves to think of self-care as such a hard thing and more like it's for you. You know what I mean? I imagine you have that with your patients as well. It's like, there's a pressure. So it's like, they'll take meds in some cases, or they'll go to therapy, but the in-between part of like, what do you love to do? Like make, make that happen. Even if it's 10 minutes, it doesn't have to be a 90 minute <laughs> spin class or something too extreme. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The phrase like, let it be easy. comes to mm-hmm. mind. It's like, I think we try to, we think that everything has to be hard, but things can be easy too. <laughs> I love that. What is one way that you I love? I'm like, I'm like co-interviewing you. <laughs> Like, I want to learn everything about this woman. What is one way that you find helpful to ask people about, or not ask, but suggest the self-care practices mm-hmm. and the range within, right? Because we've got like art and piano playing could be self-care, but so could walking and yoga. Like, what's your way of introducing that to new clients? Mm. Sometimes this is what I've been doing lately is like, what feels anchoring for you? And Mm -hmm. everyone has a different anchor. Some people, it's like if they wake up and they just go outside and take a breath of fresh air, that feels anchoring and that sets them Mm -hmm. up for the rest of the day. Or for others, it's like reading, reading at nighttime, whatever it is, like those anchors, it could be a few times a day or once a day. That's the start of it. I love Uh, that. That's what I've been doing lately. Yeah. Or for activities, my question is always like, what? what is the value of doing this outside of any body changes? Like, you know, what's the value of doing yoga for you, even if your body stays the same? And sure, if sure. they can name those, it it helps them understand why they like the thing in the first place. <laughs> mm-hmm. I love that. And I don't know if you saw, I think I may have sent you a practice that I just wrote up, but if anyone needs to access a little user-friendly somatic practice, if you just go to my blog, so it's mm-hmm. romeacumes.com and then blog tab, there's a practice to sort of introduce some of these concepts. So you can go into the body, naming emotions, naming sensations, and then, you know, doing a little bit of breath work at the end. Cause I think for some people it's intimidating to even know how to start with this stuff, mm-hmm. but that's, I'm, I'm speaking to more like somatic psychology and body centered awareness that can be overwhelming. So I think what we're talking about doesn't have to be so intense. It could be like you said, what's the anchor you know, mm-hmm. are you going to, you going to make a meal? Or are you going to go on a walk? But if anyone's curious about the body centered techniques and they kind of have no idea where to start, that's one practice or doing some searches on what is somatic psychology can help people get an understanding. Mm-hmm. It's a lot yeah. more simple than it sounds, but mm-hmm. it's a big word, but when it comes to the people that light you up, the people that you work with that light you up, who are those people and who would really benefit from working with you? Mm, the people that I work with, I, I, there's a pretty, pretty broad scope for many years. I've been working with a lot of college and young adults to help them 
utilize these tools and get them into that next phase of life of, of being confident and support their direction. And like, that's really been a passion for me, but I would say a pretty big range working professionals that have a good sense of their background of understanding their traumas. And we say, you know, little T trauma, big T trauma, sometimes traumas are, there's a huge scope. So just to use that word to say people that have an understanding of what they've needed and still could use support and therapy, but are ready to take it to the next level where they want to con connect, you know, this mind body piece and also whatever their, their spiritual awareness is. So when I say spiritual awareness, I'm not a non, I am a non-dogmatic facilitator of that. So it doesn't have to be a, necessarily a religion or even yoga, but more like what is meaningful. You use the word anchor, which I really like. So I'd say like expanding into what, what, what lights you up and what wants to, what do you want to see happen? Those are the kind of people I like to work with. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like a psychotherapist been to executive coaching, but I'm not an executive coach by trade, but more this idea of, okay, we know what's here and we know what needs to be transformed and how can we vision it together and then utilize this, this body vehicle <laughs> to try to understand it. And also mindfulness, because I think I'm sure you, you do this in your own life. It's like through that intention and that focus, things start to unfold and they start to manifest. And so you, I'm, I'm, I imagine also with your clientele, you know, you can have success, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the soul feels like it has enough in, in its life right now. And that's usually not something that's monetary or material. Right. Mm -hmm. So my intention is to get people to connect like, okay, here's my passion. And whether that's connected to success or not, that's great. But then what, what's really making me become alive and what do I want to do and how, and then service, you know, how can we be of service to others? So it's a pretty long-winded answer, but I'd say that's my, that's my intention. Mm -hmm. And that clientele tends to be young adult to, you know, mid-age, Mm -hmm. I totally see how you help people transfer all of their energy from one place and balance loading it to the other areas like their body and their soul, which is what we need. Like the alignment and the connection is all we really need. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think there's, I was thinking about one of your questions we, we emailed about and it's like this, I can't remember how you phrased it. I think it was something like, what do you see is happening a lot with clients and and I think that so many of us, not just the clients, and we've all been a client, hopefully in one way or another to grow, it's this, this sort of global feeling of shame that seems to be in so many people right now, this feeling of, you know, I did something wrong or I am to blame. And so that's that negative cognition stuff to really look at that and go, okay, I, here's my old narrative of feeling like I didn't do good in some way, or I'm not right in some way. And how can we transform that narrative so that we really feel it? And that's where the body's important. Cause if we just, and EMDR works with this too, which I'm certified in cause EMDR is helping us go, okay, here's the body centered awareness of this negative cognition. And then how can we get our brains to literally reprocess it? And that's really fascinating work too. Cause we can't just do, we can't just think our way through it. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering in your sort of clientele, what's the specific type of shame that they're coming to you with? What are some examples? Yeah, I was thinking about that this morning. There's a lot of what they didn't do for other. There's a lot of like, 
how they let someone down or how they need to do even better. And so when you think of that, that's such a young thing, right? Like, oh, look, mom, I did the the backflip off of the, you know, trampoline. Like, did you see me? Right. So it could be as simple as that of needing attention from parents, or it could be something as, you know, unfortunately traumatic as, you know, never being told that they were good enough. And like maybe some of these really high achieving children and then continually striving and striving and striving to get that that accommodation and that support from their family. So I think it's a big, it's a big scope, but I would say that like needing to please and be recognized seems like the big shame. And then what happens is when, when one is not that, I think to answer your question, that's where it seems like the shame comes in. It's like, Oh, I didn't, you know, I didn't do good enough and, and that kind of thing. So I do highly recommend EMDR for people and also tapping. Like if people don't want to go see a uh, EMDR therapist, but they want to do their own practice on themselves alongside with their dietitian or their therapist. Emotionally focused therapy is one tool. Have you heard of that? I've heard of tapping, but not, not that one. Thing I think EFT is the name. I think there's been a quite a few iterations now, but yeah, tapping for working with those negative beliefs can be really good. But EMDR is a little different because it works with the dual attention stimulus. So if anyone's ever heard of like that light bar or the sensors, there's, that's what Dr. Francine Shapiro, who came up with the approach, that's what she learned was there's something about the movement back and forth between the body, whether it's eyes, binaural beats or sensors that really activates it. But tapping has a very calming effect as well. Just to, for people listening, it's a little different than what EMDR is. But in my experience, you do have a similar kind of calming effect. Mm-hmm. Have you tr- have you tried EMDR yet? I haven't tried either. I'm, I've been meaning to one day. It's pretty cool. Yeah, it's good stuff. Yeah. So this has been so fun. And I think people get exactly what you're saying. This probably speaks to so many people and their deepest inner thoughts. So with that, where can everyone find you, Romy? Oh, thank you for having me. I I really love connecting with people that are in your field and know, understand as much as you do. So thank you. My website's romycumes.com. So that's my name, R-O-M-I-C-U-M-E-S.com. And that's pretty much where, where everything is at currently and working on some different projects and things. And that would all be on the blog page of the site. So Mm Fantastic. Well, it was so nice having you and I can't wait to continue to stay connected. Yeah, you too. Take care. Thank you for joining me on this episode of the Craving Food Freedom Podcast. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and please leave a review. I love hearing from you. Until next time, I will be right here rooting for you always on your ongoing journey towards food freedom.